it's encouraging to see guys, so many guys here this morning, and I'll, and I'll tell you, uh, Dave said it already, to see so many older men, um, guys whose kids are maybe long gone, who we can lean on uh, as, as younger dads. I'm, I'm really thankful to see so many guys here interested in being a part in some manner in training up the next generation. Well, all of us here in this room, or most all of us, have perhaps many things in common this morning. We have uh, jobs that we work a lot in. We have kids, or maybe kids on the way, or kids that just left, or something like that. We have practices to go to. We have recitals to go to. We have more practices. We have zoo trips. We have wives that need our attention. We have responsibilities around the house. We have neighborhoods, neighbors that want to barbecue, want to watch football. We have uh, landscaping stuff to do, you know, all that kind of stuff. We all have lots of things to do. We want to be involved at DSC serving. We want to be in our neighborhoods serving. We want to be in our community serving. Well, I think we have this in common too. I'm constantly, and I suspect you are too, juggling balls, right? We've got balls in the air. Four balls, six balls, 120 balls, right? You get balls in the air, and you're constantly doing this, right? And you're going, uh, let me get this one because I dropped it, or I forgot about it, or I dropped three, and I forgot about them, and I've neglected them too long. We're juggling balls. We've got balls going in the air all the time. And uh, I know that that lends itself sometimes to some discouragement and some failure, it seems. That's okay. We're going to talk more about that a little bit this morning. While having eight kids at home might make you think I'm some kind of parenting specialist, if, if there is such a thing, let me assure you, it does not. It just means I've had more experience with making bad decisions and more mistakes. And of course, um, in keeping with that, more opportunities for God's grace to shine through. One of the reasons I'm up here this morning is because I've found some things to be true over the years, and I want to share them with you. These things uh, shouldn't be much surprise to us. They're in God's Word. God's Word says they are true. But I've seen them true time and time again, and I want to mention some of these things to you because I've seen them lived out, and I've failed too, maybe like you, in light of these truths and in administering these truths to my family. Well, this morning I want to put before you some some really simple principles that I think will better help us be equipped for training our children. But before that, I want to ask the Lord's help. So let's pray. Father, we are wholly dependent upon you for anything good in our lives, and each of us can testify to your faithfulness despite our forgetfulness and our laziness at times and our inattentiveness even to what you've called us to. Your faithfulness is at the very foundation of why we gather this morning. We rely on you, Lord, to use us as your instruments in training up the next generation. Lord, would you help us to do that now? Well, we're going to operate this morning under a few suppositions that I believe the Bible teaches plainly. We're, for sake of time, we're not going to go through all the references, but I do want to mention these principles because they're critical to our understanding of what comes after what we're going to talk about further. Firstly, there are five things. You don't need to write these down, though you certainly can. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including kids. Secondly, 
Children are a gift from the Lord, not an encumbrance. Thirdly, parenting is a joy and a privilege, not an inconvenience. Fourthly, success, in quotes, is measured by what parents do, not by what children do or don't do. And lastly, parents are the most powerful influencers in the lives of their children. They are more important than culture. They are more important than friends. They are more important and more powerful, maybe, for lack of a better word, than Sunday school teachers or anything else. The government, whatever. Parents are the most powerful influencers in the lives of their children. So we're going to operate under those suppositions today. Now, it's long been said that a child's greatest need is to feel loved. Anybody heard that before? Yeah. Recently, there's been a groundswell toward self-esteem being a child's most urgent need. And good intentions, I'm sure, are at the heart of both of those hypotheses. And I suspect there's some degree of truth, maybe, even just a little bit, in both those sentiments. But a child definitely needs to feel a a sense of belonging and approval from his or her parents, right? He or she needs to feel loved. No one would argue that. One approach to parenting that's popular today is to constantly be trying to create atmospheres in which our child's self-esteem and feeling of being loved is built up at the expense, it seems, of just about everything sometimes, doesn't it? Again, no one would argue that a healthy Self-esteem and and feeling loved are are good things. But that assumes something, guys. i got to tell you, that assumes that method, that that ideology that's prevalent in our society today, assumes that a child's self-esteem or their perceived value of themselves, their self-worth, if you will, is based on a sound assessment of themselves. Right? Let's be clear. The world is not teaching our kids through our schools, the media, or the culture, that they're sinners and they're at enmity with God. The, Bible's not, the Bible does teach that, excuse me. Our schools and our culture and so forth does not. Our children are sinful and they are deserving of God's full wrath. And unhealthy self-esteem turns into self-love and self-righteous one, a self-righteous one at that. It's no wonder that our society is filled with children and adults who think the biggest problem in the world is outside themselves. The truth is that much of our modern efforts to spark kids' self-esteem is really throwing jet fuel on an already raging fire. These efforts teach and encourage kids that are already selfish and without direction that they are justified in wanting and even in demanding their own way. What results is parents who now feel the need to defer to their kids whose demands are increasing in both frequency and gravity because the child has the right to express himself or herself because they got told so at school. And that's what the books say, and that's what the PhD people say. That results in greater demands, which results in further depravity and more freedom, and so on and so on we go, and parents are catering to that. Dad, you want to nearly guarantee your kid is going to turn out delinquent or even worse, that they might stay an unregenerate sinner? Keep feeding and feeding and feeding self-esteem. Tell them that what's inside them is really, really good. And their concerns matter more than what the word of God has to say. Let me suggest this. Let me suggest an even greater need than feeling loved or having a good self-esteem. At the very least, 
a need that supersedes any emotion or heartfelt desire, however sincere. I want to propose to us dads here something this morning that's far more important and of much more value than any psychobabble that the world has to offer, however well-intentioned. We'll do that in just a second, but first I want to uh, reference a, a handful of things that I found on a number of parenting websites, some of them Christian, professing Christian websites, over the course of the past several months. All of the things I'm about to list were present on more than one site, so they're very prevalent. Most all of the sites were, or, uh, were authored or contributed to by people who had lots of letters after their names or before their names or whatever, uh, by people who I'm sure spent more time in college than I did. But I should point out, I did spend seven years in college. I've got a four-year degree, but I did spend seven years in college. And I don't have any letters after my name. I should say, too, that nearly every one of the sites I'm about to quote headlined was something like this. Here's the top ten things you need to know about parenting, or something similar. Top five things in some cases. Listen here. These are in order of prominence. Put, wrap your head around this. this, is, this is, these are many Christian websites telling us how to parent via the web like this. It says here, number one, most prevalent, do the best you can. That's it. Do the best you can. Number two, don't try to be perfect. Number three, read with your kids often. A couple more. Love your kids unconditionally. Give your kids self-esteem. So that's number four on the list. Very prevalent in society. Let them build something with you. Take your kids on walks. Let them interrupt every so often. Take them out for ice cream sometimes. And lastly, teach them to throw a baseball. Now, who would argue with any of those things? Those are all good things, right? Maybe except the interrupting part, I don't know. Doing all these things would definitely make us feel better about ourselves, wouldn't it? Wouldn't they? Doing these things would definitely make our kids feel better about themselves. And that's good, too. And, and doing all these things would probably even win us some kind of uh, father of the year, father of the neighborhood award or something, if there is such a thing. But which of these things that I mentioned has much value beyond feelings and temporary emotions? Again, all of those things, or most all of those things, are good things. And doing those things with our kids is good. And doing those things with our kids will open up possibly opportunities for discipleship and sharing and talking about the Lord. So this is not a, um, not a condemning statement against those things in particular, but it is to say none of those things expressly targets our child's greatest need, even though they purport to. Well, men, can I suggest that our child's greatest need is that they be reconciled to God? That's not a need that's particular to a certain age group or just kids. All people, whether children or adults or anything in between, share that need in common. I'm afraid that sometimes we tend to treat our children differently than their hearts demand because they're cute or because they may not understand the full gravity of their actions and their words. Their hearts, whether they're two-year-old hearts, nine-year-old hearts, or 17-year-old hearts, are at war with God. Romans 3 says... They are not righteous, they do not seek God, their paths are ruin and misery, and they are enemies of God. Enemies of God. Enemies of the one who is able to throw 
both their body and their soul into hell. Friends, this is our child's greatest need. Amen? Men, we're raising our children in a society that loves what is evil and where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's not new. Our current society, perhaps more than any other generation or so it seems to young bucks like me, is raising its children to indulge in wickedness. Current state law and many coinciding federal laws allow for the murder of unborn children up to and including the day of delivery. Other laws allow for homosexual marriage, state-funded anatomy changes and treatments, and divorce can be as simple as a phone call and a couple signed pieces of paper. The family and the Christian family in particular are under attack. This should not surprise us as the Christian family and God's church are the two primary foundations or the two primary institutions that the Lord uses for carrying out his eternal purposes. What more would our enemy love, our adversary, the enemy, love than to undermine our very foundations? I'm here to say this morning that God's ways are not proven ineffective. They're not old-fashioned. We just don't do them anymore. We don't try them. They're untried, largely. The foundation that the Lord has set, his way, as the Lord refers to it in the scriptures, those should be our aim, our measuring stick, for us to walk in the way and talk in the way and lay in the way and come to know the way. The way, or this idea of the way, is cause for much discourse throughout both the Old and New Testaments, and it's mentioned several dozen times. Throughout several places in the Old Testament, God's anger is said to have been kindled against different people because they did not walk in the way or they were not in God's way. In other places, the phrase the, the phrase, the way is used instructively to indicate God's plan for his people. And in many cases, to parents and dads specifically, when the Lord instructs them to bring up their children in the way of the Lord. So that phrase, the way, do a word search on it, Google it, look it up in your concordance. The way is very prevalent throughout the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 6, we read of the way, though perhaps maybe in a slightly different context. It says, these are God's words to Moses, and Moses recites them to the people of God. It says this, This is the commandment, the statues and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, all the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, that part's familiar to all of us, right? But what are the statutes and the rules then? What is it that we are to write everywhere and talk about all the time?
Our study through Psalm 119 in recent months corporately correlates much with this idea of the way. The way, simply put, is God's statutes, his decrees, his righteous ordinances, his law, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. This idea of the way or the way of God, we might, um, might better kind of process, process this and think about it as Psalm, I'm sorry, as Proverbs 22.6 says, in the way we should go, not according to us or our hearts, but according to God's word. Well, what is that way? The way is spelled out throughout scripture, but for sake of time, we're just going to touch on, on one verse in particular, at least right at the moment. That's Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, where it says, a verse we're all familiar with, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You see, steadfast submission to the rule of God is the central and, centra- uh, and summary, rather, admonition for all people everywhere, and children are not any different. Our children's need then, and ours as dads, is to fall under God's rule. They need to walk in the way, and we need to walk in the way, the paths of righteousness, and follow the way, the truth and the life. Notice here, that doesn't merely mean that we find ourselves in the way. We place ourselves in the way intentionally, and we actively practice to stay in the way. Let me say that again, just in case that might be on your handout. We place ourselves in the way willingly. We don't just find ourselves there. And we actively practice to stay in the way of the Lord. Dads, we show our kids the way when we expose them to the very words of the way himself. You know, Jesus called himself that, right? The way, capital W. When our children are subjected to God's life-changing words often, they repeatedly come to a fork in the road to either continue in their their rebellion or to repent and see their need for a savior. The way becomes rote for them when we talk about the way, when we lie in the way, when we sit in the way, and when we walk in the way. When the way is all about our homes, when it's present in our speech and our conversation, when the way is more than just Sunday activity and a prayer before a meal when the way is written on dry erase boards in the office and post-it notes on the refrigerator and it hangs in the frames on our walls, then kids are acquainted with the way. Through those things, among others, we teach our kids and we show our kids the way. We are indoctrinating our kids with the way from morning until night, from Sunday through Monday, 365, 24-7. The way is our way, and the word of God tells us the way. We walk in the way, we talk in the way, we eat in the way, we sleep in the way, because the way is the Christian's way. The Christian home belongs in that way, and he has called us to do it. Now, dads, we can't assume that our kids will come to understand the way through the scripture only in our prayers. We must model the way for them. Our example is critical, dads, as we model the way for our kids. We can't ever hope to penetrate the hearts of our kids if our hearts are not first soft and following the way. Dads, our testimony and witness to the things of God can be forever altered because of our hypocrisy. How can we tell our kids to walk in the way, to sleep in the way, and to live in the way if we are not first walking and sleeping and living in the way ourselves? Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet and says to the scribes and the Pharisees, you hypocrites, exclamation point. 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Hear this, dads. Our lives need to be a walking transcript of the truths we profess. Nothing undermines godly parenting more than hypocrisy. As Spurgeon said, train up a child in the way he should go, but make sure you go there first. My wife came up with an apt analogy for this principle. I was not good with analogies, though I tend to spray them all over the place even though I'm not good at them. And my wife said, here's one you should use. Much like, um, you know, when you're on an airplane, and I've never been on an airplane when there's been a, a, an emergency, but the oxygen mask drops down, right? What do they say? Use yourself and then, use the per- and then help the person next to you, right? Use that oxygen yourself, then give it to your kids. Imagine with me, dads, if we were as diligent to talk with our kids about and model for them the way with the same intensity and enthusiasm that we talk about and follow our fantasy football team. What if we knew the very words of God and his instructions to us the way we know the stats of our favorite baseball players or NASCAR drivers or whatever? What if we studied the word with our kids and we let them see us studying the word and praying and singing with hearts full of gratitude with the same passion that we follow our, sa- our favorite sports team. We might be passionate about the Denver Broncos or four-wheeling in the desert or lowering our handicap or education or work or any number of other good things. But do our kids see us being zealous about and committed to the way? Well, dads, part of showing our children the way and modeling the way for our children is to be on constant, on a constant and never-ending crusade to evangelize our children through careful and diligent discipline, informing them of their need for a savior, bringing them to understand their transgression and the separation that that has caused between them and God. Dads, our chief responsibility and privilege to and with our children is to shower them with the truths of God's word, declaring to them their inadequacy and ours and the adequacy or the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, the one who paid their debt. This is true both for, an, both for our children who have already professed Jesus as their Lord and Savior and for those who are as of yet still unregenerate and lost in their sins. These truths never expire and are no less relevant for a 16-year-old professing believer than they are for a toddler. Our yoke and our pleasure as dads is leading our families in the way through the unceasing refrain that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That mercy can be found if they will only kneel at the cross. Some of us dads have children who have professed Christ, who have made credible professions and have and are learning what it means to walk with Jesus and live in submission under his role, I'm sorry, under his rule and authority. For those of us with kids like this, dads, we continue in the aforementioned practice in the hopes that any doubts or lack of authenticity might be snuffed out. We continue to pray and, th- and thank the Lord for his gift of salvation that has penetrated our homes or seems to have, asking him for affirmations of our child's faith and asking him to help us, help our children at whatever age, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And we can encourage our kids in the way too, imploring them, as 2 Peter 2.10 says, to make their calling and election sure. 
We need to be and encouraging our kids as well to be on the lookout and fervent and zealous to be clothed in Christ, to aspire to and work toward these virtues listed in the preceding verses. You're all familiar with that passage, things like faith and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and those types of things. Well, some of us dads maybe have kids in both categories, those that are saved, maybe those that are yet not saved, or maybe kids that don't seem saved. And kids that are saved or maybe haven't made much of a profession or haven't shown much fruit as of yet. Whatever the case, there are standards throughout the Bible that we as dads are to use guides, are to use as guides as we train up our children. We could well talk about the biblical standards of loving others, commitment, finding the, finding the right spouse, um, purity in thought, membership in a local church, all those things and very, very good things. But if given the task to do so, I'm guessing all of us, if I asked you right now to write down on a piece of paper the top five or top ten things or whatever that you might say to your kids by way of guidelines, we'd all probably come up with some that are fairly similar, I'm guessing. There would be some, several, uh, lots of overlap there, lots of things that would be in common, I think. Um, but for sake of time and because I think I see three traits that are very, very prevalent in the scriptures we're going to talk about those, those three attributes in particular. The three qualities I'm referring to, this is on your sheet, they will serve our children in most every capacity. The three are this. First, obedience. Secondly, self-control. And thirdly, discernment. Obedience, self-control, and discernment. Let's tackle the most important first. Obedience. Obedience is the path to blessing. This is first and most important because the commands to obey and the, uh, the accompanying command to honor there in Ephesians 6 are the only commands in the scriptures to my knowledge given explicitly to kids. It's first here too on the list because the practice of, of a child obeying his or her parents sets the stage for the child, whether young or old, and nearly all of what is learned hereafter hinges on the child's compliance to his or her parents. The most urgent need our children have, as we referenced earlier, is for our children to be reconciled to God. One of the ways in which we teach them this truth is for them to learn to obey, to be willingly under the authority and dominion of the king by submitting to the authority of their parents. We teach our children to obey the Lord by teaching them to obey mom and dad. As dads, this does not relieve us of half of our duty because of your wife's involvement. We can't shirk our responsibility here, dads, because the command for the child is to obey both parents. We can't shirk our command either for the child to honor their father and mother because we have a wife in the home as well. We can't abdicate our charges here. We must enforce and demand obedience from our children, from our youngest to our oldest. And it's especially important that this call to obedience be heeded, especially in the younger ages. This is critical, dads, who have young, young kids. I would say this is particularly critical in the first six, six years of life, and I would say even more specifically in the first three years. So from age eight months, nine months, ten months, something like that, to age three, obedience is critical. Critical, critical, critical. I can't emphasize it enough. As dads, one of our greatest privileges, and sometimes the hardest, is to teach our kids to obey. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? 
because it's right. Dads, we are responsible for training our kids up in the way, in the training and the instruction of the Lord. As the ESV says, in what is right. Now think about that for a second. Contemplate that. The Lord has charged me and you with teaching and modeling for my child, your child, what is right as declared by him. That's heavy. It's heavy in at least a couple ways. The way of Christ Jesus is the right way, and we have the solemn charge of instructing and modeling this attribute for our children. One of the best means by which we can indeed, uh, by which children rather, can indeed honor their parents is through obedience. Proverbs 29.15 tells us that a child left to themselves, not made to be compliant by his or her parents, brings shame and disgrace to the mother. There's a similar warning for dads about about a kid that's allowed to be to himself being an embarrassment to the father. Why else is the biblical mandate for children to obey and honor, honor their parents necessary? As if we needed another reason, right? The Bible says so. That should be good enough. Let's keep talking about it, though. Why? Because it will go well with them. It says there, doesn't it? Colossians 3.20 says, because it pleases the Lord. So there's two more reasons, in addition to just because the Bible says so. Multiple references are made throughout the scriptures, tethering the obedience of children to parents and blessing, as well as the disobedience of children to their parents and curse. You needn't look hard to, to see those throughout the scriptures. The scriptures refer to Eli's sons as worthless men. The Lord says in 1 Samuel 3.13, that he would bring punishment to Eli's house because Eli did not restrain the wickedness of his sons. In both Romans chapter 1 and 2 Timothy 3, we read an indictment against paganism in that one of the designations of such people is that they are disobedient to their parents. We would note, too, that as Christian families, according to 1 Timothy 3, men... We are to model submission and obedience to Christ by requiring submission from our children. If I can, guys, I want to speak very candidly for a minute. We must not be embarrassed to be the authority in our home, guys, and the lives of our children. We're exercising God's authority as his agent in our home. You are in charge, not your kids. As a parent, you must exercise authority. You must require obedience from your child. You're not doing so as a cruel tyrant or as an oppressive slave driver or any such thing. You're doing so under the headship of Christ. He has ordained you to be the head in your home. Parenting is a full-time responsibility. It's not part-time. You shall teach them when you sit down, when you rise, when you stand, when you walk, when you eat, when you sleep. That's parenting. It's nonstop. There are dads in our culture and there are dads in our churches, guys, who have spurned their role as the head of their home in unbiblical deference to a wife, maybe who wears the pants, an after-school program, teacher, coach, maybe even the church. And I'm not talking about delegating or entrusting your wife or the child's teacher with particular tasks or about assigning portions of their education to your spouse or to the school or to a daycare or anything. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about total abdication of responsibility. 
or what the military, I think, calls dereliction of duty. Is this you here today, Dad? How you parent your kids will largely determine how they turn out. Are your kids shouting at one another? Do they scream incessantly when you tell them to do something? Do they tell you no? When you say, son, come here, please. Does he tell you no, or does he say, why? Does he do that? Does she do that? Is that you here? Do they argue with selfish motives? Do they talk back to their mom? This is a direct result of our parenting dads. This is not a result of a disease or a learning disability or a chemical imbalance. This is, this is me. This is you. This is us dads, and it's time to man up. Secondly on my list, self-control. The Bible talks much about self-control. Self-control is essential to not only life in general, but the Christian life and life spent serving the king and his church. Learning to be self-controlled is contrary to our heart's desires. We needn't look any further than a 10-month-old screaming when he doesn't get his way in the grocery store. Toddlers that don't learn self-control turn into teenagers that have no self-control, and they turn into adults that have no self-control. As Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a, broken, a city broken into and left without walls. How many of us know people, maybe not just young people, but even adults in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, who seem to ramble through life, kind of bouncing off all kinds of emotional impulses, careening off uh, seemingly hopeless temptations one to another? They seem to have no boundaries. It's as if these people simply move from one thing, pleasure to pleasure, problem to problem on a whim. These people have not learned the discipline of self-control. But back to that toddler for a second that we just, that kind of caused you to conjure up, I'm sure maybe even recently from a trip to the store or something. You've seen those kids, maybe, maybe it's your kid, throwing an atomic temper tantrum next to the gum section, right, in the store. What's at the very foundation there? What's the real issue in that moment? Is it that he or she isn't getting his way? I don't think so. I think what is at risk in that moment is the child's refusal to submit to the parent's authority. That child, even though he might not be able to voice it, he can certainly voice it, but he may not be able to put it into words, his real problem there, his, his, um, his voicing, probably screaming, swinging at mom, that kind of thing, his screaming is, is basically yelling, my kingdom will not be threatened. I will get my way. Who do you think you are, mom or dad? And it's on display, isn't it? Again, I suspect some of us have dealt with some of that. Sadly, um, what's happening in that moment in the store is not the problem. It's just a symptom of the problem. I want to give you two, two kind of two kind of problems that are demonstrated there in that, in that moment. First, the child is allowed to rebel in his sin. And sadly, this type of thing is often followed up. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you've even done this, by a parent saying something like, oh, isn't that adorable? Have you ever seen that? That makes my stomach turn when I think you're just encouraging your son or your daughter to pitch a fit, and you're not only endorsing it, you're approving of it, and you're actually encouraging more of it. It's not cute. It's disheartening. 
The second problem is that the parent who's there in that moment is what Proverbs 19.18, I think, would call that parent is, is called a willing party to his child's death. You see, as the parent doing nothing in these scenarios by refusing to correct and discipline his or her child is not maintaining a posture of neutrality. They're not just sitting this one out, though they might be tempted to do so facing the wrath of a little two-year-old or whatever. This parent is actually approving of his child's disobedience and lack of self-control. The Bible says that in that moment, hear this, dads, that parent hates their child. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to, to, to discipline him. That's really strong language. Obviously, we don't know the spiritual condition of either the parent or the child in the fictitious scenario that I just kind of draw, uh, somewhat fictitious scenario that I just kind of drummed up. But the call for submission to God and his word is not predicated upon a person's inclination toward his or her pursuit of personal holiness. The appeal to obey is universal and is extended to all. Now it's important for us to pause here for a minute, for a minute to remember that a child's external obedience and or self-control should not be construed as internal compliance. Outward conformity, of course, is part of the goal, but it's only a small portion of the goal. As Ted Tripp says in his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, when parenting short circuits to behavior only, we miss the opportunity to help our kids understand that straying behavior displays a straying heart. Tripp said it well, but in other words, what's happening on the outside is merely an indicator of what's happening on the inside. According to the scriptures, the battle that rages in the heart is not just one that rages in words, in smirks, in faces, and in gestures. The battle that rages in the heart is one that we must engage. The Bible says in James 4 that the passions of our heart are what condemn us. For out of the heart of man, reads Mark 7.21, come evil thoughts, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and so on. All of these things come from within our hearts. There are further proofs, proofs that the Lord takes a lack of self-control very seriously and that a lack of self-control can cause long-lasting irreparable damage and consequences. Paul tells us that a lack of self-control in his own life could even disqualify him in 1 Corinthians 9 and render his testimony ineffective. Paul's second letter to Timothy says that in the last days, children will be disobedient to their parents and without self-control. This comes just preceding the judgment. We mustn't let our children's cute slobbery cheeks and silly vocabulary distract us from understanding that behind all of that lies a corruption and a depravity that is anxious to express itself. And it does so in the form of a lack of self-control. That's not just for younger kids, though, too. Older kids, though, maybe less cuter and cuter in different ways or whatever, and using vocabulary that's no less weird, seems these days, my kids do anyway. Those kids, too, have a, have a heart that is bent against God if they do not profess him as their savior. Well, demanding external compliance coupled with, and this is really important, external compliance coupled with scriptural truths about the harm, recklessness, and eternal effects of sin, as well as the message of the gospel, 
though all those things shepherd a child toward not just outward acquiescence, but inward compliance, true heart change, a true relationship with God. That's pointing our children toward that all the time. These actions and these examples coupled with the scriptures begin to inform our children that they are dead in their trespasses. This is what it means to be faithful to the task of parenting, and more specifically, fathering. It's our charge to obey and his to make good on his promises. I read a quote many years ago, and I wrote it down, and I tried to find it this past week. Couldn't attribute it to anybody. It sounds like a Puritan dude, maybe. It says this, Success is thine affair. As for me, grant me obedience. In other words, you just give me what I need to obey. You handle the rest. I'm going to trust you to do what you said you would do. Help me to obey. There are further proofs. Um, I'm sorry. Out of order. Lastly, when we're going to move on to uh, discernment, our last, last uh, one of the three, all under the heavenly ob- uh, umbrella of teaching our children to walk in the way. We are called to live within a disciplined pattern of thinking and within a disciplined pattern of conduct as God's people. Now, at the very foundation of these principles, or one of them anyway, is the necessity of discernment. Discernment is the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and deceit. It's also, however, the ability to recognize and perceive the disparity between good and best. Discernment, in its purest form, is simply thinking biblically. Discernment is holding fast to that which is good, to that which is truth, and letting loose of that which is sin and falsehood. Like a pilot flying without instrumentation in his cockpit is a, is a Christian lacking discernment. Biblical discernment is essential for godly living. Now, why do I mention discernment as one of the top three qualities to teach our kids? Here's why. The Bible teaches that our hearts are deceitful above all else, right? That's what Jeremiah 17 says, right? If that's true, and it is, then assuming our children will grow into adults and have all the right coordinates or their instrumentation, to go back to my analogy, is quite an assumption, isn't it? Why would a Christian need to test and approve, as Romans 12 tells us, if their only required instrumentation comes from within? You see, our dashboard, our equipment, our heart is faulty. Our control center isn't working as designed. It says we're maintaining altitude at 33,000 feet, when in reality, we're approaching the mountain at 600 miles an hour. Our center console says that our wings and our engines are sustaining us just fine, keeping us in flight. But in reality, the engines have stopped thrusting and the wings have fallen off. Relying on my heart for navigation is foolishness. And the Bible says so. Remember that song from the 80s, Listen to Your Heart? Hope not. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Examine everything carefully. Colossians 2.8 warns us about our hearts that can easily be led astray due to a lack of discernment. Paul's prayer to the church at Philippi is that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they can approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Hebrews 5.13 and 14 says this, 
that those that are lacking discernment are unskilled in the word of righteousness, but that the mature have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And lastly, guys, as if that wasn't enough, try as we might, we cannot isolate our children forever. That day will come when our kids are not kids anymore. They'll head out into the world. Some of you can attest to this, I'm sure. They'll head out into the world. They'll be, they will need to be armed with the skills of discernment and wisdom to sense and resist the pitfalls of sin. If we choose to buffer our kids from an evil environment, we're ignoring the true enemy, the enemy in their hearts. Lots of kids I've seen, in fact, I was one of them, learned compliance only on the, on the outside. I learned external compliance. And the moment I got out of my parents' house, it was a headlong rush to what was evil. Bless, bless my parents' hearts. They weren't, they weren't trying to do that. Well, dads, I've got some really bad news. The bad news is that you can't do this. You are not capable. You are insufficient. You are not adequate. You're flawed. You're lacking. You're unreliable. You've come up short. But dads, I've got some really good news too. Unbelievable news, actually. There is one who is not lacking. He is not insufficient. He is not flawed or defective or faulty or inadequate. He is up to the task, and he will be our help. He has not left us to ourselves. Psalm 121 says, He who keeps us will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our shade on our right hand. The, sh the sun shall not strike us by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep us from all evil. He will keep our lives. The Lord will keep our going out and our coming in from this time and forevermore. The covenantal implications there, the language used, keeper, shade, that type of thing, ought to remind us that the Lord is ever with us. And our charge to raise up the next generation according to his word should lend us hope and encouragement that he will give us what we need to finish our commission. If only we will look to him to be our help. He is ever present. He is ever capable. He is always faithful. His word says that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and instructs us to make every effort to supplement our faith with a number of things. Hard work. We're supposed to be diligent to strive unto godliness and godliness in the lives of our children. Dad's parenting is hard. It is really hard. But it's a commission worth all the energy, all the struggle, all the sweat. And it's our God-given assignment. Let us do it under his care, depending on him, for he is able to do it. And he delights in his children and in giving generously to us what we desperately need. Let's ask him for that now as we close. Father, would you help us? We are inadequate. We are incapable, yet we strive. Would you help us, Lord? 
Would you give us the humility to look to you to be our help? Would you give us more grace? Would you use even us here this morning, powerless and incompetent as we are, as your instruments in raising up God-fearing children, the next generation of servants in your church and tools for your kingdom? Would you in your mercy, Lord, give us what we need? Would you in your great mercy use us here in this room to raise up the next generation, to follow you all the days of their lives and to serve you in the church? Lord, we pray these things now in uh, the power and the might of Jesus and for your glory and our good. Amen.